Welcome to Raising Rochester. I'm Pete Novosny. Raising Rochester is brought to you by The Children's Agenda and focuses on the key issues affecting children and families in Rochester and New York State. My guest today is Jessica Lewis. Jessica is the communication specialist at Rock the Future, a community-wide collective impact effort that aims to improve educational outcomes for children in the city of Rochester. Our conversation today focuses on Jessica's experiences as a child who participated in the urban-suburban inter-district transfer program and her reflections on the program today. We also discuss the history of the program and grapple with some of the critiques of the urban-suburban program in this community. Jessica Lewis, welcome to Raising Rochester. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk today about the urban-suburban program here in Monroe County, um, which is a program I think you have a about as comprehensive a perspective as, as one could have um, on it. You were a participant in that program uh, growing up, and you've also worked for Urban Suburban. Mm-hmm. But from having chatted with you about it at different times, I think you have, you know, you've got a nuanced sense of kind of the the different aspects of the program, and I'm, I'm really excited to, to dig into that with you. But before we jump into all that, I want to make sure our audience you know, has a sense of who you are and your background and all. So tell us a little bit about about Jessica, did you, where'd you grow up? And yeah, we'll, we'll get into your experiences over in suburban a bit, but what led you to the place where you, where you are today? Sure, so again, my name is Jessica Lewis, born and raised in Rochester, um, was in the urban suburban program, started as a second grader. I actually, I was inspired, I went to school to be a teacher and I was inspired by my social studies teacher who taught Global One and a course called Dignity, Diversity, and Discrimination my senior year. And so I went to school to become a social studies teacher. Um, But after that, I did not go into the classroom right away because I wanted real world experience. And here I am some 15 years later, still in my real world experience, um, but always a teacher at heart. Um, And so I, I, you know, kind of believe that when you're a teacher, especially for social studies, you're a storyteller. And that's kind of what I do now as a communications professional. And and you work now for uh, Rock the Future. What is Rock the Future? Sure. Rock the Future is a cradle-to-career initiative designed to improve educational outcomes for students living in the city of Rochester. So they don't just have to be enrolled in RCSD. They can be a charter school. But um, as long as they're living in the city, uh, we're working to improve outcomes at a systemic level. And this year, Rock the Future turns 10 years old. Growing up, and I think most of our listeners live in, in this community and probably have some sense of what urban suburban is, but but we'll just, you know, level set, I guess. What is urban suburban? When was it founded? What was the original intent of the program? And then mm-hmm. maybe we can kind of um, get into how it plays out today. Sure. Urban Suburban is an inter-district transfer program. It was started in 1965. It is... It was initially one component of a larger program called Project Unique, which had nine components. And so Urban Suburban started as an exchange program between two high school social studies class. And I believe the one class was at Madison, the other was at Penfield. And those two teachers decided to um, swap. Isn't there a show like wife swap or something yeah (laughs) so this was like school swap (laughs) class swap um and so i think the students in both of the classes got a lot out of it and so they kept going and then eventually it grew to not just being a class where students were kind of switching but literally enrolling in a school and and going there full-time yeah in in the context i think at the time was rochester was actually one of the last major um metropolitan areas uh, of the the great migration from the south so there weren't a lot of black families in 
this area, you know, prior to World War II, um, and then really between 1950 and 1960, a number of families, um, African American families from the South, moved to Rochester um, in seek of uh, in seeking out a better life, and nearly all black families that were in Rochester were in the city of Rochester, and particularly in, in several neighborhoods, um, which we could we could talk a bit about. But the suburbs were extraordinarily white at the time, right? And so this was a part of a larger effort to, you know, the 60s were a period of, it was the civil rights era. There was, there was a desire to integrate schools. And in the South, that took the form of, of court orders and, and busing and things like that. Uh, I think the idea at the time in this community was to, to construct a sort of a voluntary desegregation effort and create better diversity uh, throughout the um, the various you know school systems in the community, right? Yes, that's correct. And even uh, during the migration, uh, black people actually lived more on the outskirts in the rural area. Um, and then as jobs became available, moved into the city. But then once blacks moved into the city, you saw white flight occur. Yeah which is when they then moved into the suburbs because my family on my dad's side is actually from Caledonia. Yeah. Many of them still live out there. Um, and we have like a big family picnic on the 4th of July every year in Caledonia. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, um, Howard Cole's from Mumford um, and uh, there's you know still a lot of um, black families out in Sodus area, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and workers had worked in agricultural jobs in the South and so it was natural, but then um, that's a really good point. Um, so. So originally, urban suburban was an idea of a, of a cross district exchange, kids mm-hmm. going both ways. Correct. Um, um, but then over time, it really evolved mostly into a one way exchange, right? Where children from the city, black and brown kids from the city, would go would have some access to go to school in the suburbs. So that's not really the intent. It wasn't the original intent of the program, but that's where it's evolved um, too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct. And it's even since evolved, like from when I was working there, because at first you had to be minority. Um, some people pointed as BIPOC. Now it's more around socioeconomic status. And yeah. so as long as you're quote unquote, what's, what would be the correct terminology? Yeah. You could say low income. Low income, <laughs> um, which would include white people. Yeah. So now they're able to participate in the program, to my knowledge. Yeah. Why did your family choose to try to enroll you in that program when you were entering your your second grade year? I think that my mom um, completed an application just because she wanted me to have an opportunity at a better education. Um, And so I think that's why she decided to do that. And I feel like a friend of hers or a colleague at work told her about the program and then she went on to complete the application. So what was it like? I guess you you were a second grader. You started going to, I don't know which elementary school in, in, in West Arondequoit. Uh, it probably doesn't matter, but if you want to share, you can. Uh, what are some of your early memories of, of entering the, the program there? Um, I just remember my mom being like, okay, you're going to a new school. Now, when I was in first grade, I used to walk to school yeah. every day. And so we moved across town. We lived on parcels and the bus came. And of course, the, the most famous thing about being an urban suburban is the early bus ride. Yeah. You have to get up so early because it's that one bus, you know, going around, picking up everybody. And at that time, it was a couple of elementary schools plus the middle school on this one yellow bus. And so I got on the bus. OK, everyone looks like me. All right, great. And then we pull up to the schoolyard, get off the bus. And I was like where am I? Yeah. <laughs> because no one looked like me. Yeah. Um, but I remember three of us getting off the bus, myself, a girl named Amber, and a boy named Sharif. They were older than me. They were in third grade and I was in second grade. And then, you know, you get into your lines for your respective classes, you know, and then you go inside. And, 
you know, I was okay, but I certainly recognized the differences, you know, yeah. early on. Yeah. Yeah, and the school that you had been a student at in first grade, guessing just based on my knowledge of the demographics of, of RCSD was majority black, mm-hmm. guessing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and the school you went to was almost entirely white. Yes. Point, right? We that were the... to put a real, mm-hmm. you know, thumb on it, right? Yep. Uh, and were there many black students who were residents of, of West Arundacoit, or was it pretty much still at that point the the diversity to the school brought to the school was was primarily from from kids from the city going there once i got older to junior high and high school that's when i started recognizing that there were more black people who lived in arondequay when yeah. i was younger i couldn't there you know you, you just don't even know you're not even paying attention to that kind of thing but i will say i remember um i remember this one kid being in my class who was indian and i knew he was brown so i kind of thought he was like down but i quickly found out he was not (laughs) so i was like oh okay yep i'm in this all alone all right very good (laughs) yeah so as you got older um i mean i think we all become more aware of kids are aware of race Mm -hmm. at a very young age and they i think begin to understand the world and and understand that there are societal uh, there's you know cultural differences between (laughs) different groups of people and there's and then there's a lot of kind of bigger issues that you that you begin to identify as you as you get older beyond just skin color that are connected to um, to skin color. So as you got older and, and became you know much more attuned to let's say issues of race and racism and all that, I guess I'm trying to ask like what did you what evolved I guess in your thinking of, of being one of a, a handful of black students in that in that school, particularly as you re- reached like middle school and got to high school. Like what was your What's your general sense of, of being, you know, one of very few uh, black students in that school? <laughs> I think once I got to middle school, it's probably when I really started to recognize it. Number one, first off, because um, the black and Latino boys in particular are always disciplined much harder than the white students who would like commit the same acts of, you know, yeah. bad behavior. Again, try not to name drop, but yeah. you know, when you are in an environment like that, there's so few, you, you just know who's who, yeah. you know what I mean? And so I just remember, you know, certain things happening in class, you know, a kid might get kicked out and it's just kind of like, all right, but someone's over here just did the same thing, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think you just become a little bit more aware as you become older. Um, and then I remember in junior high, now I've always been black centered, always. Yeah. And I remember in social studies class, um, I asked a teacher like, well, can we learn about black history or ask her something? And her response was, yes, we sure can. And she gave everybody more homework. So then everyone hated me, you know, because of that. And here I am just trying to fight for equity in the best way that I could as a sixth grader. And she assigns more homework. And what do you think? So I think it's still the case today that in suburban school districts in Monroe County, they're predominantly white, right? There's um, the the suburbs have been diversifying, um, particularly, I think, on the west side. I think Gates, Chai Lai, uh, Greece, East Irondequoit as well, Rush Henrietta, there's an increasing kind of diversity within these school districts, but um, RCSD is the only majority minority district in the in the region. And I've, I've always been curious as, as a white person, I guess, um, how I enter one of those spaces and that's, you know, I'm the, the accepted default in that mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's familiar to me. I, I've, you know, I think I 
grew up kind of more rural area than a, than a suburban area, but but I get the you know the general vibe in the school and, and the power dynamics and things like that. And I was as I was raised, I that was the the default. And I think there's still a a real perception and it seems like the reality of black children and black families in our suburban schools, you know, feeling like they're not as welcome or that they are, they're, they have to kind of accommodate to the, the kind of existing power structure of that school as opposed to power structure changing to, you know, accommodate them and, and their perceptions of the world and their values and, and, and things like that. And it would seem to me, I've got a question here somewhere. It would seem to me that the nature of the urban suburban program is actually like there's that dynamic that that black families who live in majority white areas already feel but it would seem to be it would be even more severe at some level um if you're a urban suburban student because there's this sense that you're like a, a guest in that school mm-hmm. right you don't live within the boundaries mm-hmm. um and i'm just kind of i'm wondering would you agree with that what would you disagree with a part of that like where do you kind of how do you think about the kind of racialized spaces and 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 how that plays out for for students in the program or played out for you as a student in the program and then you are connected to lots of people in the community and all that and what's your sense of of the, the broader perception there today sure no i i don't think that you're wrong i i definitely think that that does happen and as a youngster you whether you're black, white, or whatever, whether you live there or not, you're you're trying to fit in, right? So yeah. as a black student coming from the city, it's very easy for you to assimilate because, again, there's another level of otherness that exists for you that doesn't exist for your counterparts there, you know? And so I think that um, a lot of students in urban, suburban, you know, kind of feel that way. But also at the same time, there's many still trying to maintain who they are, their culture, what they bring and knowing that they bring their gifts and talents to this environment and it's mutually beneficial. So it's not like we're coming to a suburban school and thank God you let us in and now we've reached, you know, the manifest destiny type of thing. Like, no, we're here to learn from each other. And so I think that if more people start to lift up that narrative, then maybe we can begin to kind of change the perspective and the narrative on that. Gotcha. Um, Yeah, I'd I'd hope that would be the case. I mean, we're been going at these racial issues in this country for for a long time. And we, um, you know, we certainly haven't, we haven't gotten there yet. Mm -hmm. um, So the other, you know, I think the urban suburban program is, I don't know, I, controversial is not, not quite the right word, but there's, I think there's a lot of disagreement um, mm-hmm. about whether or not the program is, I don't know, again, I can't find the right word, because it, it's, it's not that it's not beneficial. Um, I mean, families chose to enroll their children. There's about a thousand kids in, in urban suburban coming from the city to a suburban school. And, you know, it, these things are very complicated, but you know, in the aggregate, there's a certainly a perception that the educational experience that a child gets in some of our suburban districts is is better than they they get in the city. I mean, certainly the parents believe that because they've chosen to enroll them and go on those long bus rides and, and all that. But it's it's a very small program in the large scheme of things, right? There's about 100,000 students in Monroe County, about mm-hmm. 75,000 kids in in suburban districts. There's about a thousand kids who are in the urban suburban program out of, I don't know, twenty something thousand um, city students, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I just looked at before we re- recorded, we started recording. You know, Brighton's got about thirty six hundred kids, and there's like sixty five kids in urban suburban. Um, so it's you know like one percent mm-hmm. basically of the 
of the student body. So why do you think it's so small? Like why don't you mm-hmm. why don't districts double, triple, quadruple the number of, of kids uh, that they allow into urban suburban program sure so how the program works is that the districts will say they have this many seats available like overall right and they'll count based on their enrollment so they might say okay in second grade we have this many openings and third whatever whatever um and so based on whatever that number is that's what they project that they can take for the following year and then that's when they come in to you know review applications you know, for those students that they're looking to bring in. And so about them not taking more, I I don't know if that's an enrollment issue on their part. Like you want to keep class sizes to a certain, you know, number. So if you only want 20 kids in your class and you have 15 enrolled in your district already, then that means you have five seats available that you can allocate to urban suburban. And and schools do have constraints on how many classrooms they have and what the building can accommodate and all that. It, It does seem to me that there are fewer kids in this community than there were 20 years ago and, and 30 years ago. And, and I mean, the urban suburban program has grown, and I think the, the suburban districts are trying to, to keep their enrollment up by having more kids in urban suburban come there. Um, it helps their school finances. It's, you know, they don't have to lay off people, you know, if they've mm-hmm. got, you know, enrollment. So there's, a, there's an incentive to maintain enrollment through whatever means you can, and some of that is is through this this program. But... I don't know. I, I, the program's been going on for you know fifty six years now, right? And there hasn't been, to, to my knowledge, like a, a, a effort to say like we're can really seek out like a you know we want to get our district to you know to be forty percent mm-hmm. uh, or thirty five percent originally black and brown, and but now let's say lower income uh, mm-hmm. because of the changing criteria. But mm-hmm. a real aggressive effort by any any district to really seek that out. And I think it's, you know, they, there's laid out there, right? There's there's some real hesitancy among parents and, and, and residents in those districts to have to have too many kids of color in that district, right? Um, Do you remember the Spencerport yeah, debacle? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I was employed there and I had a headache at work every day yeah. just dealing with all the mess, yeah. <laughs> honestly speaking, sure. that came out of that, the, the board's decision to yeah. bring urban suburban there in the way that you know, community members showed up. Not all were negative or against it, um, but you had your few. Yeah. You know, and so that that was definitely a thing. And I would say that the program has certainly grown in terms of the number of districts participating. Because when I started, we were at seven. When I left, uh, we were at twelve. And I think they're up to fifteen yeah. now. So. Yeah. So again, there is that desire to to maintain at least enrollment mm-hmm. through various means, but but urban suburban being one. But it doesn't. But that's to me. That's viewed within the larger context of some of the goals, the broad goals of desegregation, of of maybe ceding some power and space and things like that. It doesn't seem to be kind of taking that on. So then the other um, sort of critique of urban suburban, and and I'm throwing these out there because I think it's a it's a useful way to kind of like talk about some dynamics of the program, is that the model of it, the sort of the we're going to have kids from the city and families from the city choose to apply and then get selected. And then, you know, I said it before, I said like allowed to go to that school. It's, you know, it's very much a power, there's a power dynamic there, right? And those parents aren't residents of that district. And so there's, I don't know, do you think there's a sense um, among uh, any program participants or among the school officials that 
the urban suburban kids are guests in that district, <laughs> that they're not like regular students, for lack of a better word? Or do you think they're, they're treated differently because of that dynamic or their families aren't heard to the same extent? And I, I'm you and I have a mutual you know, friend and uh, former colleague that I think went through some of this. And what's your sense of, of that? Um, yeah, I, I would say, I'd say it's on a spectrum between being a guest and allowed and all of that. I think that there are some people who, you know, will welcome you just like any other student there, will treat you the same, you, you know, won't ever bring it up. Um, I think there's certain times when it does become more apparent, like my senior year of school, I started driving and in Western Rondequay, then if you were a junior, you got like a blue card. And if you were a senior, you got a gold card. And basically it gave you more freedom. And so I went to the main office to get a parking pass because we were allowed to park at the firehouse. And the secretary looks at me and she says, these parking passes are reserved for residents. Ooh. And being a student, I didn't have the language to like tell her off. <laughs> now yeah. that I'm an adult, I probably would have had something to say, but I just, yeah. I didn't even know what to say. I was just like, oh, okay. Little did I know that me being an urban suburban student came with a dollar amount on my head. So really you're getting more money from me yeah. than your own students that live in the district. So give me two passes. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, so that's terrible. And um, I do want to kind of explore that, but that that's the other, we don't have to dwell on the, the final critique that I had, but that, there is that sense that um, the districts get more funding per urban suburban student than they do for resident students of that district. Um, and so that's, there's a kind of a resource issue there that we could we could also talk about. But so that kind of comment or attitude, what do you think like the cumulative effect of, of things like that are on, you know, that's one incident, but I'm sure there were other incidents mm-hmm. like that. What do you think the cumulative effect on a lot of students is from that kind of thing right? well i would say for black students or students of color who are enrolled in that program first off you learn how to navigate two distinctly different worlds you learn how to navigate a white world you learn how to navigate a black world yeah. and i feel like that makes you better prepared for college right because unless you go to an hbcu you're going to be at a predominantly white institution and once you get into the workforce nine times out of ten your employer is going to be white majority white and so i think for you it allows you to just be better prepared to deal with different people you learn about different cultures um you learn the different nuances how people think act behave you know conduct themselves the way that they think but at the same time when you are an urban suburban student like i mentioned earlier you're so busy trying to assimilate as not to be othered that it is it is easy to lose yourself and so i think one thing for urban suburban parents and families so incredibly important to make sure that you are maintaining your culture um, so that you don't lose it along the way and that you're learning, you know, about black history or Latino history or whatever the case might be, because it's not a part of the curriculum. And if you advocate for it, you're likely going to get pushback. Yeah. And so I, I yeah, I hear all that. Um, I'm curious. So you you were one of the very few students who went to your school at West Rondequaid, um, but you were still living in the city. You still lived in your neighborhood, and mm-hmm. you had friends from the neighborhood who, I'm guessing, given the housing patterns, let's say, that we have, that your, your friends in the neighborhood were probably also black, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how did you process those things, like, at the time? Like, we could talk about the, the parking incident, but but the broader, like, experiences, because you're going to the school that's predominantly white, almost entirely white, uh, and your friends in the neighborhood are not. They're going to a school that's 
almost entirely black or largely black. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you? Yeah, how did you process those things with your? friends growing up mm-hmm. and this, this question is funny because only urban suburban students can relate to this like we, we have such a niche experience so when you are um <laughs> growing up in rochester everybody goes to a school with a number like oh i go to 16 oh i go to you know 58 i go here i go there but when you're in a suburban school your school has a name so i go to brookview elementary school i go to rogers middle school and so if you say that they're not going to know what that means like rogers middle school what is that you know what i mean and so what you learn to do is you'll say i go to school in a or I go to school in Penfield. Yeah. You learn to associate your school with the district because then it'll make sense to the kids in your neighborhood. So again, that whole just, you're constantly, yeah. you know, like tailoring and you're learning it at such a young age. And how about code switching? Yeah, Like we didn't even touch on that. The yeah. amount of code switching that you have to do as a young person, again, when you're in school versus when you're at home or in your neighborhood. And like, I used to cheer for Pop Warner for the Rochester Rams. And so going to practice, you know, kids in Irondequate played Vince Lombardi. So they were doing Irondequate Vikings. And so they were developing relationships outside of school, mm-hmm. not only because they lived in the neighborhood, but they were participating extracurriculars together. Yeah. I was going home and being with my own people in the city. Yeah. <clears throat> so when we came to school the next day, I can't talk about what I did because they're not going to understand. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. So it wasn't until I started participating in sports at school that we could then be like, oh, well, we okay. have practice tonight. Yeah. Now we can go together. Sure. Yeah, I think that the cultural literacy or, or whatever that mm-hmm. someone picks up um, through exposure to the program is, and that stuff does, that all starts at such a young age, which, you know, you said that, I mean, everyone learns, every child learns, like there's different behaviors in, in school, at home, in church, things like that. That's part of like growing up, but the added layer of sort of the um, racialized expectations around some of those things and language use and, and, and it's, yeah, it's got to be something. Yeah, so I, I'm just... I guess we'll be wrapping up soon, um, but I'm curious, like, when you graduated high school and you went to, you were getting ready to go to college, kind of how you felt about how you reflected on the program then, and now that you've been working in um, this education world and in all for a, a while now, both as an employee of Urban Suburban and now as someone who works at, at Rock the Future, how you're thinking about the program has has evolved over time. Um, what do you think then, and what, if anything, has changed in terms of how you view the the value of the program in this community? Sure. Well, I would say I overall had a positive experience. I met my best friend there. You know, we went to college. We were still best friends. Like I was in the, the maid of honor in her wedding. So the the program was phenomenal for me because I had a good experience. Everybody can't say that. You know what I mean? But that was I was a good student. I was very social. Like, you know what I mean? So yeah. it, it worked for me. Um, and so I do, I, I find value. I still find value in the program. You know, if something was to happen to it, I, I would not like to see that. You know, I would like the program to continue. If they could expand and bring more, great. If we could find equity in RCSD so people could stay at their home school, great. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I, I think that, you know, it does serve its purpose. Or even if it could go back to the exchange where it's suburban to urban. Let's see what that looks like. Yeah. You know, if the criticism is that, oh, you're taking the best and brightest out of RCSD. Oh, okay, well, let's see what you have to offer from suburban districts and what can you bring to city schools. Yeah. Been, been great to, to chat with you today. Um, as we've talked about several times, you were also, you work for Rock the Future, mm-hmm. which, um, as we mentioned earlier, is a, a very large and uh, 
collective impact effort um, here in the community to, to focus on improving education in the city. So Rock the Future has an event coming up. Tell us a little bit about the uh, State of Our Children event. Sure. So every year we have the State of Our Children address and report card release uh, where we share with the community, you know, what's going on in the education system, report on some data. This year is Rock the Future's 10th anniversary, although it's our ninth report card event. Uh, we're returning to a one day in person. Last year we were virtual because of COVID. Um, and so the event will be on Wednesday, November 17th at the Memorial Art Gallery from 9 to 11. 11 a.m. Um, we're going to have a gallery walk, which will basically uh, cover like the last 10 years of our history, some installations and, and some boards where people can look cool. at some moments uh, from Rock the Future's history. And it's free. Great. And we'll include um, in the show notes here links to registration and, and things like that uh, where people can learn more. Um, but it's a great way to, to dive into both this year in particular, the history of, of, of Rock the Future, um, and then sort of what's happening in our community around the education of, of kids in the city, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, I think that about does it. Thanks so much, Jessica, for, for joining me today on, on Raising Rochester, and uh, it's been good to, to catch up with you. Likewise. Thanks so much for joining me today on Raising Rochester. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and family, including on social media. And feel free to send feedback or show ideas to me at Pete at thechildrensagenda.org. Until next time, on behalf of The Children's Agenda, I'm Pete Bosby.